0: Usually, people wait so, so long. And by the time they're in the therapy office, they've got like 10 tons of shit on their back. And you have to start unpacking that. And it's really hard.
1: Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Okay, Jennifer Lair, thank you very much for making time for me today. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: And maybe just to start, you could talk a little bit about uh, the work that you do.
0: Sure. Uh, So I have a long and sordid history, um, but (laughs) so there was a lot of evolution and steps along the way in different fields. But where I am now is I've um, spent 10 years working on a a relationship educational program, which um, we're turning into an app right now because I've, I worked with so many couples that needed more resources than they had. And I'm in the process of writing a book that's personal. Yeah. I'm, I do a lot of writing, a, a lot of education, uh, writing. I have three blogs. I write for a company. Uh, I have a lot of writing that I put out there to help people, um, grow in whatever way that article, you know, points them to or they need. Yeah.
1: Tell me about the personal book. That sounds kind of juicy.
0: Yeah, so I've written my whole life and I've always wanted to put it together and I just recently in the fall started pulling all these stories I've written and adding more. A lot of my writing is personal because people learn by hearing other people's stories, um not just, you know, through explaining how things are but actually sharing, you know, events and vulnerabilities and uh, transformations and that kind of thing. So I'm writing some of the stories. Um, I'm just writing stories about my life and what I've experienced and how I was impacted. And, you know, it's sort of hard to explain what I'm writing uh, without like reading a story. <laughs> um, but it's, um, it is, it uh, is. you know, I've got stories going back I pulled, pulled out old notebooks and I pulled out stories going back 25 years and they're mixing in with stories from today. So it's a real, um, movement through my evolution of basically starting as someone who really wasn't equipped to uh, deal with life. Um, wasn't quit I wasn't equipped to deal with relationships and what I went through to gain the skills I needed to to gain and the people I've worked with and how they influenced me and it impacted me and like just for an example I wrote a story after my, after my mother died uh, I wrote a story about how she my mother was very cut off from her emotions so I wrote a story about you know my struggle to get her to open up and you know how I didn't really forgive her till after she died um, so yeah that kind of
1: level of personal stories. So how did you become a marriage and family therapist? I mean, did you always want to do this work? How did you kind of fall into that? I did not always want to do this work.
0: <laughs> my father was an artist, an illustrator and an artist. So I went, my sister and I both went into art and I did art for a while. And then I got into film business in the film business and I worked in the camera department and worked uh, as a, you know, shot some low budget films and operated. And cause I loved images and I also worked with tarot cards which, you know, help people bring helps people bring out their stories. And I realized at some point I was way more interested in the internal growth process and not interested in creating images for a story that might actually not help anybody do anything. So um, I slowly transitioned out of visual art into internal creativity and creating oneself.
1: Creating oneself, what do you mean?
0: Uh, how you create your life? How you how you use your thoughts to create whatever is going to be next? How you set your how you use your intentions? How you heal your wounds? How you go into your wounds, your emotional wounds? How you change from uh, one kind of person to another kind of
1: person? So, in We're your bio, hmm? sorry to cut you off. In the That's the okay. bio that that your publicist sent me. It reads, there was one line that jumped out. at me. it reads that you were able to quote, change your relationship ability from poor to excellent unquote. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about that a little bit. And I'm specifically interested in like, what are some of the things that you, you feel you were doing wrong in your relationships as a younger woman?
0: Right. So it wasn't that I was doing them wrong so much as I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) So um, relationships were my Achilles heel. Uh, I grew up with a, a violent, ch- charismatic, creative father, and a emotionally repressed, much more practical mother, and um, I didn't know how to have relationships at all. So you know, you fall in love, you start a relationship, and then you have a conflict, and you don't know how to you don't know how to deal with it. I, I jumped out. So, I would, my pattern initially was I jump into the relationship and then I would jump out and find someone else because I had no ability to work through whatever was going on. Even if I loved them, I fell in love with someone else and able to exit the relationship I was in. And then um, at some point, I got in a relationship with someone who had a serious, serious addiction. And that relationship really took me down to okay, I have a problem and I have to deal with this. And that caused me to get into a lot of, You know, I did a lot of workshops. I got into 12 steps. I uh, read tons of stuff. I did a lot of internal work. And so that relationship um, got me on a growth path that I hadn't been on until that happened. And I was 29 when that started. So my first seven return. And then I... um became a, you know, eventually became a therapist. I had a lot of therapy. I had a lot of couples therapy. I eventually became a therapist. I did tons of training. So my whole path has been about um, reconfiguring myself from someone who, you know, one 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 of the ways I describe it is we have wounds and our wounds collide. So you might feel that I'm being pushy and I might feel you're not listening. And that can blow up because we don't have the ability to say, hey, I've been pushed my whole life, don't push me, or I've never been listened to, you need to listen to me. And we don't have the stories attached to those concepts or these reactions. We don't always even know what we're reacting to, nor the story underneath the reaction. And as you unearth that and are able to start talking about it, you can start mending and building a bridge between these two different places, these two different people in these two different worlds. So that's sort of how I would describe... um, a little of it.
1: So would you say your overarching advice to someone who's having a pattern of destructive or unfulfilling relationships, would you say the main thing is find a good therapist? Is it as simple as that?
0: Well, that's going to help, but it depends. Like, I know someone right now doing EMDR trauma work, and um, that's probably helping her more than a regular talk therapist, because they're actually getting into the old horrible, horrible, horrible things that have happened and rewiring her brain to integrate the trauma into her body so that she doesn't go into altered states. So um, yeah, some form of therapy could be really good if you have uh, those kinds of difficulties, challenges.
1: I'd like to talk about- you I'm know, very I beg- pro- I beg your pardon? I
0: was just going to say, I, I was just going to say, I am very pro-therapy.
1: <laughs> mm. Put it yeah. out there. Absolutely, yeah, me too. I'd like to talk a little bit about your your therapy practice. and And one thing I'm really curious to know is, why do couples come to you? Do you start seeing the same problems over and over? Do you have a specialty? Um, are there you know trends that are um, that you see over and over again? Like, why do people come reach out to you?
0: Right. Okay. So I'm not seeing couples right. I'm not seeing people right now. Just so you know, I stopped a few years ago because I had too much on my plate. However why did they come see me they came to see me because they were either referred to me or someone they knew saw me um or they read something i wrote and they came you know there's a lot of good couples therapists and there's a lot of really really untrained not so good couples therapists out there and one of the difficult and couples therapy is very different than individual therapy when you have a couple in the room Someone has to be able, and someone starts putting someone down, attacking someone, getting um, emotionally, you know, activated. Someone has to either calm someone down, stop someone, put up a boundary. It's a very much more active than individual therapy. And I was skilled at—I was just had the right—I have the right physiology or whatever skill set that I was really good holding the couple so that they both felt safe while they were going through the process. And I had a lot of training. So I, I, I think that's why people came to see me. Yeah.
1: And when you talk about being active, do you mean simply you're jumping in the conversation more? You're establishing more boundaries? Like, what do you mean by that?
0: Uh, that's part of it. Um, being able to stop someone if they're like a train running someone else over and say, okay, what's going on with you right now? Um, creating space for each person bringing whoever needs to go down into some feelings down there bringing whoever needs to open up an awareness to that awareness uh, yes um, it's active because you have two people and they're often in a state of conflict not always but often there's something bothering them and they're struggling and so it's different than just you know helping someone you know go through some memories and re- reorganize how they're thinking or it's very it's just very different work.
1: So I am not a couples therapist, and I've never been to a couples therapist. So I'm I'm really interested in this. From your vantage point, from your position, are you on some level trying to not take sides, so to speak? Are you very conscious of that? Like you don't want to feel make someone feel like they're being ganged up on? Like, how do you sort of navigate that? (laughs)
0: That's really difficult sometimes, especially if I get triggered and I see something that reminds me of something and then I have to very consciously say to myself, no, we're not taking sides. However, sometimes you may need to support a weaker person and actually take a side for a while so that person has space. Um, but basically when I was working with couples, it felt like sometimes I had two siblings in the room and I was the parent and I had to make them both feel held and that it was equal and they both were important and both their stories were important. And that would be the main, the main um, conceptual bubble that you're holding, even though there's times you would like say, okay, you be quiet for a while because we need to deal with this. So um, there there are times where you have to be a little bit forceful.
1: And when I was asking you, excuse me, about the reasons that people were coming to see you, I'm also interested in recurring problems. So what kind of problems would you be seeing over and over and over again? Is it as simple as, as communication issues? Is it infidelity? Like what did you see over and over again?
0: Well, what I see over and over again is people get caught in the symptom. We're fighting about money or why do we have to go to your parents house every holiday instead of my parents, or uh, I don't like the way you treat the kid. There's, it's always up here. And so there are different, there isn't a one specific thing except for they get caught in the, the cycle where they're repeating their particular problem over and over. And what you have to do is get them down below the surface into their vulnerable feelings. So um, the reason I not, I'm mad that you spend all that that you that I don't that we can't you know share our money equally. But I feel like I'm not important to you because you don't trust me with how I shop. Or they have to get into the deeper layer, and that's that's you have to go from the surface to the deeper. There isn't a specific over and over problem except for people don't know how to communicate. They don't know how to be vulnerable with each other. Um, they don't know how to open up into what's really going on to solve the particular problem they're dealing with.
1: I read a line once that's always stuck with me. The line was uh, one of the main reasons, or two of the main reasons people break up are sex and money. How true or not do you think that statement is from your from your perspective?
0: I think those items play a, a role for sure. Um, sex is a really big one. <laughs> And money's a really big one. A lot of it was a lack of trust. You know, if someone was, um, you know, whether they were cheating or not, they were emotionally engaged with another person in a way. Or, I mean, if you want me to open up sex a little, I will. Sex, for instance, um, there's emotional connection and there's physical connection. And some people need the emotional connection to feel comfortable with the physical connection. And some people feel need the physical physical connection to feel emotionally connected. So right there, you have two people coming at it from different angles. Another issue is, and I'll give you an example on this one personal. So my father was extremely uncomfortable with his daughters, you know, in their teenage years because he didn't know what to do with their sexuality. So he avoided us. He put us down, you know, you're ugly, you're this, you're that. Cause he didn't know what to do with his feelings. So, you take someone like that and put them in a relationship, they're going to be very shy about um, about they're going to have a shyer sexuality because of how their father treated them. And so what happens with sexuality is we all have these stories. Um, I can think of a number of stories. I know someone whose father used to uh have sexual, do sexual things with his mother in front of him while he was a child. So he was overly sexualized. So he would come at things from a very overly sexualized uh, angle because he had been exposed to it in a way that was inappropriate when he was young. So you put, you if you don't even know your sexual history, it's like a puzzle piece. How do you even talk about why am I responding this way? Why are you, I can even think of a couple. Now this is sort of weird interesting. A couple that had really good sex and a really not good relationship. And they didn't want to get into the sexuality because they felt they didn't want to get into the sexuality of the relationship because they felt like they'd ruin it uh, because it already worked. And I said, fine, leave it if it works. But most people, it's not quite that simple. Um, and different people get turned on by different thing. they, things. They get, have different levels of comfort with different things. And if you don't find a way to communicate some of that, you can get stuck where, let's suppose you have a person who's needy sexually and this person always needs the f- sex to feel close and pursues the other person and the other person feels badgered. They have to find a way to uh, talk about what's going on underneath. Like maybe you can feel secure without having without having sex all the time. Maybe you can give a little bit more in terms of you know, not always falling into feeling badgered, uh, for someone to take care of you because that person had to take care of everybody growing up. So you start getting into the stories underlying what's going on and communicating and unraveling
1: that. Since we're in this territory already, it seems like a good time to ask you about attachment theory. Yes, I know you're very interested in, in attachment theory, and I'm very curious to hear you speak more about that and specifically how it informs your work. What is attachment theory and how does it inform your work?
0: Right. I think attachment, well, so attachment theory, you know, goes back to Bowlby whenever he was around. And, um, but it's only recently been developed in the last, let's say 20, even 20 years ago, it was hardly on the map. I would say just getting on the map in a big way. And there is attachment theory is groundbreaking work for the whole um, couples therapy uh, community because attachment is what happens uh, to mammals, where we need to know that we are valued, that we're safe, that the person we're with uh, is responsive to us, that they are attentive. We need to know that we're important. And this is hardwired into us. I mean, it goes back to being nursed and um, held as a baby. So when you start looking at Couples through the lens of attachment theory, you develop you have have a whole new language to help them understand. Not, um, you know, I'm mad you didn't pick the milk up at the grocery store, but God, don't you know me well enough that you could remember that I need that, and it makes me feel so unimportant to you that you didn't that I always have to do this, and that you can't, you know, think about what I need too. It changes the whole conversation um, to what's really going on. And it makes people tune into each other in a much different way than if you don't use that language.
1: Did you see a lot of anxious uh, attachment people hooking up with avoidant attachment? Is that sort of common for your your work back in the day?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They need to do more research on that because, um, uh, because it sure looks that way. And I I was doing some Googling recently going, has anyone done any real research on this? I didn't find much because if you get into um, uh, Emotionally Focused Therapy for Couples, which is Sue Johnson's um, brand of attachment couples work, she talks about the withdrawer and the pursuer. So there's usually a withdrawer and a pursuer, the one who pulls from connection to feel safe and the one who goes for connection to feel safe. And usually the withdrawer is male and the pursuer is female not always but more commonly and so if that's true my question is when we look at attachment theory are there more male with more male um more female anxious and more fem- and more male dis- you know pull- dismissive or not so i'm not sure i'm a, that's what it seems like um, but i would like to see someone do some real research on that and get some better answers
1: there <laughs> another excuse me another line from a book that I think about all the time um, there's a very very good book it's called if you're in my office it's too late have you read this book <laughs> written by a New York City divorce uh, lawyer I have not heard this book but it's completely true because
0: usually people wait so so long and by the time they're in the therapy office they've got like 10 tons of shit on their back. And you have to start unpacking that
1: and it's really hard. Yeah. Mm. 10 tons of shit. That's not a bad name for a book. Yeah, that <laughs> would be that <laughs> it. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because this book was written by a divorce lawyer, not a therapist in New York City. Um and it's it's written about his observations about relationships. I can't recall his name, James something. Absolutely mm. tremendous book, highly recommended. But one of the lines in in the book that I think about all the time is something to the effect of, you know, if they were to invent a divorce machine, they'd name it Facebook. So mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you about what your general take is on social media and how you think it might be changing relationships. Like, what, what's your take on that?
0: Oh, that's such a big subject. Um, I've recently, about a month ago, I took Facebook off my phone. Me too. Uh, yeah, I was like, okay, I don't need to be looking at this all the time. I like, you know, to look at the grass and the trees and notice the wind and maybe not get sucked up in this addictive situation. Um, I think there's some good in it. It does help some people feel connected and it is certainly a source of some information <laughs> somewhat by bi- a lot of it's biased, but Uh, And, you know, if you're in a business, you sort of have to use some of the social media. So I do use some of it, but, and I, I think for some people, it's not so bad, but a lot of people just fall right into it. And then where are their lives? I I mean, it must, I'm assuming it changes our brains, the whole, the whole use of it. And I think, I think that they're going to find some really mixed, mixed things on it. You know, I mean. People, like you got kids, this is interesting too. I know a lot of younger kids now that don't, like I grew up in, in the country. I, we had animals, we, you know, shoveled shit. We, got, we weeded the garden, we planted, we bailed. Hey, we worked. Like we used our bodies and worked. And there are kids now that, you know, they're on the screen. They're not really um, engaging with physical reality in the same way. And it's, it's really an alternate universe.
1: Mm. Yeah, so I don't that's, know.
0: That's, I'm 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 not saying it's bad, but I'm saying it can be bad for some people, and it's definitely affecting everyone and society.
1: But I think you know the the point that that this divorce lawyer author, whose name escapes me, still uh, escapes me. I think the point he was more getting at is, um, in particular, things like Facebook and Instagram. Um, sort of facilitating our ability to keep in touch with exes and to see what else is out there and to keep tabs right. on, you know, all this stuff. I mean, did you see any of that in, in your work back in the day? And what's your take on that?
0: Um, well, the people who were um, uh, more or less cheating uh, didn't need to do it, you know, whether it was an addiction or they were, you know, flirting with someone heavily, They didn't need uh, social media to do it. Social media makes it easier, and Mm -hmm. so this texting and um, lots of things.
1: But it was going to happen anyway, is your point, with or without social media.
0: It it might make it easier, and maybe it throws the gate down for some people, um, because if you're bored or the relationship or not connected or unhappy, you're going to look somewhere else, and it certainly makes it easier. But I don't think that's. I, the, the, I don't know that, you know, yeah, it can happen. And also it does happen and there's plenty of other ways
1: to do it too. Right. Right. Well, let's, let's talk about cheating and infidelity for a moment. Cause I know that's another subject that, that uh, is of interest to you. Yeah. I mean, this is a question that people email me and I don't feel qualified to answer. So maybe you can help, you know, mm-hmm. rebuilding a relationship in the wake of genuine infidelity and, um, right. How do you know, I mean, this is a huge topic, but how do you know when that's even possible or worthwhile? And what are some of the first steps as far as that goes?
0: Okay, so first of all, you don't know if it's possible or not. You're setting off on a journey and you're gonna find out if it will happen or not. But the two things that have to be present is the person who was cheated on has to know that even if they can't do it now, they hope to someday forgive their partner. And the person who cheated has to know that they they have to get to a place where they feel the level of remorse is not, um, I'm sorry, I did that. The level of remorse is my heart is breaking because I broke your heart. So they have to be willing to do whatever it takes to convey that over and over. And if they are defended, uh, defensive, um, blaming, unable to take responsibility, forget it. (laughs) So those are the two key pieces. Now, yeah, that's the biggest piece is the offender. And then eventually, way down the road, they have to look at what was going on in the relationship that allowed this to happen, because it's not it can be a one person deal. Like if someone has a sexual addiction, but usually there is a, a lack of connection. And often the connection, the relationship is is such that the person who was cheated on wasn't paying enough attention to the connection or they would have felt the vacuum, the emptiness, the, and this isn't always true. I, I know of a, a, ca- a case where the man led a double life and the, the, The wife gave him too much leeway. I remember having red flags about it going, this person needs to hold him more accountable, but she didn't. And so it was a long time before it got discovered and the relationship was destroyed. So it really depends. Um, But yeah, the development of empathy by the uh, cheater and the willingness to get to a point where you can someday forgive and trust again are the hmm. two biggest, I think.
1: I like the way you framed that. Like, I don't have to forgive you today, but it's an aspiration. That's interesting. Exactly, Yeah.
0: exactly. Because usually they walk in, they're not anywhere, they're like 10 miles from forgiveness. They wanna hear what happened. They need to hear it over and over again. They need to understand why. They need to be able to check the person's phone. They need access, password to the Facebook. I mean, they need everything. So they, cause they're trying to get their feet back on the ground, which is, how did this thing, you know, they just got hit by a tsunami. How did this happen? Why did it happen? What do I have to do so it doesn't happen again? Can I ever trust this person again? And as Esther Perel says, um, we are, you're not, you, that relationship is over. You're creating a new relationship.
1: Hmm. And that
0: is completely true.
1: Yeah. I love that line too. It's its so apt. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. great. Um, she has another great line about like, if you're married to someone for 30 years, you don't have one relationship with that person, regardless of whether or not there's cheating, you have multiple relationships with the same person, which is another really interesting way to frame it.
0: Absolutely. Because are we even the same every day? Right. You know, a a single person, you know, I might be not got enough sleep and be a pain in the ass one day. And I might be really great the next day. I mean, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I'd like to talk about we're on the, in the, the, you know, Uh, area of jealousy, and uh, to some extent, rational jealousy, like your partner's cheated, that makes you feel very insecure and wanting to stalk their social media and what have you. So I more deal with people, I deal with a lot of people who are struggling with irrational jealousy where they are obsessed, for example, with their partner's past lovers or past boyfriends, and they're worried about this and they're worried about that, and reading way too much into every little gesture that their partner might engage in with another person. Um, Did you see a lot of that in your practice, and do you have any general thoughts on dealing with irrational jealousy in relationships?
0: Um. I don't think I saw, I saw some of it, but I wouldn't say a ton of it. You probably have more experience with that than me because you wrote a book on it. Um, but a couple things, I, you know, a couple things come to mind. One is, um, uh, first of all, what kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be a person who actually, do you want to be a person who your every move is haunted by what the other person is doing or has been through, or, you know, or do you actually want to be in control of your own self and your destiny and choose to know that you'll survive whatever the heck happened or, you know, so that's first. Um, And we get to make those choices. We get to look at ourselves and say, who do I want to be? You know, and like, I just read this book, this novel, I'm not gonna say what novel it is. And it was very captivating. And it, the images stayed with me. And I wasn't sleeping well for a few nights, because the images stayed with me. And then I was like, I am not going to read another book book by this woman again till I'm retired, or I will never get anything done. I mean, it's like, I can't be someone in relationship to all those images she threw at me and still have a productive life. So as much as I enjoyed the book, she's on the back shelf right now. So it's sort of similar to that. The other thing that pops up for me and this, I'm very tricky saying this because it puts people in a box and I don't like doing that and actually don't believe that we should put people in boxes, but borderline personality disorders tends to be uh, people who are, very distrusting and very volatile. And I can think of a couple of couples where that would probably be the diagnosis. And one of the couples, both of the couple, both of them people, one is a woman and one's a man, man who had this behavior, had huge early trauma. One of them, his character, this one's a he, his character is set. He's not gonna be able to change who he is. He's older and he whatever is going on in his psyche it is solid it's not changing the other person is younger she's doing trauma work and she is going to change it i can feel it she's 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 unraveling the trauma that makes her obsessive about the partner so you don't always know who can who can um change and who can't, but a lot of times there's not always, but a lot of times there's a trauma behind that kind of behavior that would cause someone to be that insecure that they can't trust that they're going to survive whatever happens.
1: Mm, interesting. Yeah. And I, I agree with everything you you just said. Another line that jumped out at me in your bio and I wanted to talk about is you talk about creating the relationship of your dreams. And I'm curious to know, like, what are the, some of the first steps involved in that process? Because what I was thinking of when I, when I read that line is, it seems to me, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong, but it seems to me that many people just kind of kind of fall into relationships. They don't really even really define like, why am I in a relationship in the first place, and what kind of relationship do I actually want? Um, and I'm I'm a weirdo, but I have a whole list of. <laughs> You know, characteristics and exercise. And for me as well, it's not just putting it all in my partner. I need the perfect partner. No, but like, how do I want to show up in a relationship? And what's the point? Why do I want this in my life? Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, you know, creating the relationship of your dreams, how to go about that in practice.
0: Yeah. I want to talk first about my history and then I'll talk about that because they're connected. So my history, I'm in my second marriage, my first marriage, you know, both marriages, you fall in love, you, you get married eventually the first marriage, neither marriage was like quick to get married. I wasn't so sure about the whole thing, but um, my first marriage, the, we both supported each other's missions in life. So he was creative. I I had an art background. I supported his development in that area and he supported me in my uh, becoming a therapist. We both So even though many layers didn't work, he had an anger problem. I was initially probably too needy, I would say. Um, So even though there was this whole chunk that didn't work on the top level of why are we on the planet and what are we doing? We supported each other. So that worked. And I wouldn't have ever married someone where that wasn't part of the equation. With my second marriage, which is a much, 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 much better marriage, um, we also support each other's um, reason for being on the planet. But all underneath that, all the other pieces line up. Um, it didn't initially, we did about, I think we did a year or two of couples therapy every other week for um, after the first six months of the in love, you have the in love, you know, flawless stage. And then you hit the... Uh, oh my God, who is this person stage?
1: And I call it The I honeymoon was, hangover.
0: The honeymoon hangover, yeah. And so I was at that point um, writing We Concile. He was editing it. And so we had a lot of material to talk about. And I was really good at that point. At that point, I had a lot of training. I was really good at talking about well, you know, helping him get to well, what what triggered you and what triggered me and finding a way to bridge the gap where you know we both would pull into our own corners, finding a way to bring us back together. And I knew I had more skill than skill than him, so I knew I had to do it. I knew he didn't have the skill to do it, so I did it and it worked. Um, so that said, the relationship of our dreams, you brought up the conscious part of, and I think it's really good when people do a list of um the things they want to draw in. Like you don't want to draw in someone with an anger problem like I did, but I had an angry father and that's what I drew in. And then it was a lot of work, you know, whatever I had to change in myself to overcome the part of me that drew that in. Um, But when I talk about creating the relationship of your dreams, what I talk about is first, you have to talk about what you each want. What are your goals and dreams? How do you How do you see your lives? Like people get married because they fall in love and they haven't talked about, well, I want to travel for 10 years and I want to live in a little house with a picket fence. I mean, that's a big difference. So they have to get, that has to happen first. Also, we have to know we live in a society and probably a world where we're not educated about relationships. We learn through osmosis growing up. So we have never been taught how to have a relationship. What our skill set is, is from experimenting based on what happened when we were kids. So when I, you know, let's take you, let's suppose you had a feeling and you're, father said, you shouldn't be feeling that way. Well, what are you going to do with your feelings? Probably get rid of them. That's not going to help you later. So all that, that stuff sometimes needs to be um, like, what is your default mode? When, when she gets mad, I go away. I wonder why that's, you know, that's called um, it's a survival skill. I call these survival skills. So there's this whole thing that needs to sort of be looked at. And then the second step is when you get into the fights. What are you fighting about? And when you, what do you do? So let's suppose someone comes home late from work. I'm going to go gender typical at this point. The, the man comes home late at work, from work, and he, um, the wife cooked dinner, and she is upset. She's angry. Why didn't you come, why didn't you let me know you're going to be late? And then the husband says, I work, you know, says, well, I I work really hard to support us and stamps out the room and then she's crying and he goes to the bar and she's calling friends and screaming about. So that would be an example of they're not able to talk about I feel like you um, don't notice me or I don't feel important in my own life. And he isn't able to say I really don't want to work this hard. Some of my ambition is because I'm trying to provide or whatever the story is. So so the second so that's getting into the, the deeper story. The third step I would say is finding language. So the first step, the second the first step was all the, you know, learning about each other. The second step is when you come home late, I cry and scream and you leave, you slam the door and go to the bar and I cry and scream more. The third step is getting the language for the vulnerable feelings, which I call attachment needs and attachment fears. I'm afraid I'm not important. I'm afraid I'm not invaluable. I'm afraid you don't value me. I'm afraid I'm never going to be enough, whatever they are. Those are the first three steps. And then they deepen as you go into, you got to go into SOMA and find out what's going on. For instance, my husband used to get a really cold feeling in his stomach if we got in a fight. And one day I said to him, what is that? Or I asked him, what are you feeling? He said, I feel really cold in my stomach. And I said, what is that? And he said, that's how I felt when I was five and my father was um, terrorizing us. I said, oh, okay, you have a big, my anger is really hard for you or whatever was going on. So getting into, you know, using the body to help find what is going on. And then there's getting into more getting into, you know, who am I in a relationship? Who are we in a relationship? So what is my history? How has it impacted me? Who are we? Like, Do I understand interdependence or is it always independent and dependent? dependent because you have to build an interdependence. You have to turn the two eyes into a, we, without, um, well, there is sacrifice. Sacrifice is the wrong word. There's compromise, but you don't want sacrifice. So, um, there's, so it's just, um, I'm, it's this, uh, there's these different steps we can sell is built on these steps, which is why I'm sort of able to put them into steps right now. Um, but, The point is we can rewire and we can learn. And if the basic um, heart connection is there, if there is a real soul connection and a heart connection, it is doable. If there is not, and you married the person because, oh, he makes a lot of money and I want to live a certain kind of lifestyle, then your chances are smaller because you're not dealing with what a real relationship is. You're dealing with the externals.
1: Yeah, that's, that's that's well put. Before I ask you more about reconcile, I have to ask this just briefly. What to you is the, or either one or some of the fundamental differences between compromise and sacrifice in a relationship? <laughs> right. That's a really big question too. Um,
0: compromise. We went to your parents for the holidays last year. This year, we're going to go to my brother's sacrifice. I want to buy a bigger boat. So I need you to take a full-time job instead of get your PhD.
1: <laughs> okay. Point taken. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, before I let you go, Jennifer, and thanks again for your time, but uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about WeConcile.
0: Okay. So WeConcile, I had an idea. This WeConcile I conceived of in, I believe, and. Seven, believe it or not, a long time ago. But I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And it was 2010 before I really started making a movement with it. And I had been working with a lot of couples and they did not have, they'd come in and they might know ABC, but they did not know sentences and paragraphs and stories in terms of what it meant to be a couple. And it was like, Oh my God. (laughs) these people need more help than we can do in an hour a week or long, you know, usually actually a couple sessions. I usually did an hour and a half to, to close to two hours, but at that time I was doing um, shorter sessions and the people couldn't necessarily afford weekly or didn't have the time. I was like, someone needs to create a resource for these people. And I thought, well, I'll do that. <laughs> why I thought that, I don't know. And I had a lot of fear because, you know, working, helping a couple work out their stuff without a third person in the room is not easy. And that was my big fear. Could this be done without a therapist? But I am a a strange soul. And I continued on with this, this uh, project. I took a lot of training. I systemized um, what I felt would work uh, step-by-step what they needed. If, if it had to be systemized, what did they have to do first? What did they have to learn second? Because if you're working with a mass group of people, you don't know, it has to be systemized to some degree. And I um spent about three, at least three years writing. It was, it's because it's a massive, massive mess. It's hours and hours of material. And then I set it up. We hired a UI person. We set up a whole web educational website. And that took a while, quite a while because of, big bumps we ran into and then by then the world had changed and people didn't want to learn on a desktop they wanted quick easy bites so what we're doing now is we are and I did have people go through it and I had good success with the people who went through it but what we're doing now is making it into little bite-sized pieces for the people's for people in today's world who don't have the time or um, they don't want to sit down and do an hour of work a week they want to you know they're sitting in the airport, they want to read for five minutes. So we're changing it. We're breaking it into pieces and making it much um, accessible, not one size fits all, but choose your path, you know, answer some questions. What do you want to work on today? And um, we're, that's what I'm in the process of doing right now.
1: And the principal audience, the target demographic is people, couples who have lost their connection to each other. Would you say that that's the main sort of People you're targeting? People,
0: yeah, people who are struggling in their relationship and they want to make it better. Great. And, you know, they're going to have to be high functioning enough to, to say, I want to make it better because and not just give up. They're going to have to be able to say, yeah, I'm willing to do a little bit of work or spend, you know, 10 minutes a day reading something or otherwise, you know, there's just a lot of people in the world and some of them are like, yeah, I can do, I can change my life. And other ones don't know, other people don't know that they, they can actually change their lives.
1: Great. And their marriages. And, and where on the internet can people learn about reconcile?
0: Uh, weconcile.com, W E C O N C I L E. So it's like reconcile, but reconcile. And there's a quiz. I have a quiz, weconcile.com slash quiz. It's a 10 question relationship quality quiz. I have a, a blog with a lot of articles, including one on surviving infidelity. Um, what else? I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. And um, I'm on, at this point, a lot of podcasts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, case in point. Great. Well, Jennifer, I really enjoyed this uh, conversation today. And thank you so much for making time for me.
0: Yeah, thank you for uh, talking to me. It was fun. Yeah.
1: I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Humans in Love. If you'd like to learn more about my guests, my work, or you'd like to listen to back episodes of the podcast, please visit humansinlove.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love using your podcast app of choice. If you're a fan of Humans in Love, and you'd like to help keep the show going and help me spread the word, please take 30 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go remember that life is short, so let's make it count. And thank you as always for your listenership and support. I'll talk to you again very soon.